Well, this week and next, we are going to study the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn there. It's only four chapters. This week and next in the book of Ruth, and then, Lord willing, we'll get back to 1 Samuel. We've been in a series in 1 Samuel for quite a while. We've had some weeks off for that, from that, and we'll get back to that, Lord willing, in a few weeks. Now, you might know, you might see in your Bibles, that Ruth is right before 1 Samuel. Imagine like this. Uh, we're watching the Star Wars trilogy, and we start with you know, Star Wars, and then Empire Strikes Back, and before we get to Return of the Jedi... Uh, we go and watch the other, the, the three new ones, right? And they're before the chronology of the, the earlier ones from the 70s. I get so confused with how to number these anymore and what the new ones are called. And this is not turning out to be a helpful illustration, is it? <laughs> it sounded much better in my head before I came up here. So Ruth is something like those new Star Wars movies, but better than those new Star Wars movies. And and we'll get back to 1 Samuel in just a bit, and that's kind of like Return of the Jedi. All right, moving along. <laughs> Some have said that Ruth is one of the most beautiful and touching short stories ever written. Some have viewed it as a plea for racial tolerance. Others have viewed it as teaching family responsibility. Some have seen it as a lesson in personal fidelity and godliness amidst wicked times. Others have said that it demonstrates the strength and influence of a wise woman. And others still have seen it primarily as a love story. There's a marriage at the end. And while all these themes are in Ruth, I don't think it's too simplistic to simply say that the book of Ruth is about God. Sometimes when we ask our kids religious questions, they think the answer is always God or Jesus. And a lot of times they're right. Sometimes they're not. We're asking for something more specific. But here, if we said, what's the book of Ruth about? We'd be right to say the book of Ruth is about God and how God moves in mysterious ways. He's behind the scenes. He's bringing about his plans in the story of Ruth. He's the character in the story that, though he's unseen, he's ever-present. He's ever-present even in dark days and desperate circumstances. Let's read the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one wife was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, as we study Ruth, chapters 1 and 2 today, I want to highlight six themes. The first is in these first five verses. Dark days... Desperate circumstances. Indeed, these are desperate circumstances for this one family, but we have to understand the dark days in general for a nation and a land, not just one family. Ruth begins, in the days when the judges ruled. That's not just a chronological comment, it's a spiritual comment. Judges, as you can see in your Bible, is the book before Ruth. Ruth happens sometime in the story of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 records these days, describes what these days are like. It says there that the people rebelled against the Lord. They would not obey the Lord. They abandoned the Lord. They bowed to other gods. 
And so God said that he would let their enemies conquer them in discipline and judgment. And then as you read on in the book of Judges, you see that eventually the enemies would rule over them so tyrannically that eventually the people would cry out to God for his help. And then he would send a judge who would come in and rescue the people from the tyranny of a foreign government. But then the cycle would just repeat itself again. They'd rebel against the Lord again. They would not obey. They would abandon the Lord. They'd bow to other false gods. And then eventually get bad enough, they'd cry out. God would send another judge. And and the cycle keeps happening, but it keeps happening worse and worse, not better and better. And here's how Judges ends. The last verse of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what it means when Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. And so the famine that's described here at the beginning of Ruth was not bad luck, not just Mother Nature's unpredictable ways. The famine was divine judgment. Now remember, this is the land that God promised would flow with milk and honey. In other words, it'd be a land of abundance, it'd be a land of plenty, a land of blessing. And even more than the promised land as a whole, Bethlehem specifically, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. I like that, house of bread. Maybe because I'm gluten-free right now, I got distracted with that. (laughs) All right, back to the notes here. Now, because of the people's sin... That land that would flow with milk and honey, that that city of bread called Bethlehem had now become a barren, dry land of death. The house of bread had now become an empty cupboard. And God warned that this would happen if they rejected him. In Leviticus 26, you get a twofold promise. On the one hand, God says, there'll be blessing in the land, there'll be fruitfulness of the land If you follow my ways, but if you will not listen to your God, if you turn to other gods, you will plant and nothing will grow. In other words, famine. That's what's happening in Ruth chapter 1, a divine judgment upon the people because they're in the days of judges and in those days everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God's famine here of judgment isn't sort of his angry vindictiveness. He intends restorative discipline. He hopes restoration will happen. He's he's working this so that they will listen. Leviticus 26 even says that. It's so you will listen to me. So the famine is judgment, but it's also symbolic, isn't it? Do you remember how 1 Samuel began? It began with one woman's barrenness. And back when we looked at 1 Samuel 1 many months ago, we said, really, that barrenness is symbolic of all Israel, spiritually speaking. They're all spiritually barren, dry, dead on the inside. So Ruth begins with famine and death, and these are symbolic and representative of all Israel spiritually in these times. Dark days for all Israel, and hence desperate circumstances for this one family. The famine in the land means that they flee from their home in Bethlehem to Moab because, well, food is readily available there. Now, this is probably not what God would have them do. God warned about partnering up with the Moabites in Deuteronomy 23. So this family probably shouldn't have moved to Moab. They probably should have trusted God for his provision in the midst of the famine and the land that God had promised. But regardless, that's a picky point because that's not what the story focuses on because once they're in Moab, it goes downhill from there. There's a progression with the words. You see in verse 1, the word sojourn. They went to sojourn. They traveled there. Sojourn means a a pilgrim. You're, You're passing through. It's temporary. But then verse 2 says they went into and then says remained there. They're digging roots, aren't they? Verse 4, 
It says they lived there. A Hebrew word that means they settled down. They've gotten comfy. Perhaps by the time verse 4 rolls around, they've intended to stay. And the two sons marry Moabite women. This is definitely contrary to what God said. But again, it's not what the text focuses on. It doesn't focus on the fact that they shouldn't have married Moabite women because the story goes downhill from there. While in Moab, all the husbands die. We're not told how. We're not told how far apart it was from the father's death to the son's deaths. But it's a multiplied tragedy, isn't it? You've got famine. You've got leaving home. You've got ten years in a foreign land. Death, death, death. You've got three widows now. No husband, no sons. No hope. Maybe you're in some sort of similar season of suffering right now yourself. Maybe not like this. Maybe you're not in a foreign land and maybe your husband is still alive and maybe that's its own trial. (laughs) Mother's Day can be uh, rather hard for some folks. It can be a reminder of a lost child. It can be a reminder of a wayward son. It can be a reminder of infertility. Maybe this is your first Mother's Day without mom or without son or daughter, and that, that's hard. Well, Ruth is for you. Ruth is for you. It, the book of Ruth enters pain and human suffering with the pedal to the metal. And it also offers unshakable hope in the unshakable God. By the way, if you're not a Christian, you should know the Bible doesn't paper over human suffering. The Bible is not a book that's indifferent to pain and suffering. It's not a Pollyanna book, but one filled with tears and the stench of death. And if time permitted, I'd love right now to talk about how Compared with other world religions, the Bible and Christianity is so doggone honest and yet so hopeful, hope-giving. But let's move on. Secondly, we come to a fork in the road in the story. A fork in the road. You see in verse 6? Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. In other words, food had returned to to Bethlehem, at home. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So there's the fork in the road. Naomi's heading back home. Perhaps they've already started to head back to Judah, three of them together. And and Naomi stops and says, go back home, girls. Go back to your families. Go back to home, And she mentions husbands here. In fact, it's a repeated emphasis in the verses that follow, 9, 10, 11. Husband, husbands, and sons keeps getting repeated. Of course, there are no husbands and no sons to speak of. But the prospect, the best prospect for a husband for each of these ladies is in their own homeland. We can all understand that. It'll be more significant, these references to husbands and a son, as we get further into the book. But for now, we just understand it as... It is practical. Go back home. There's a better chance there you'll find a husband. A better chance there that he'll one day provide you with a son. Notice the relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-laws. It's quite close. Quite loving. This should shut the mouth of all those in-law jokes. Mother-in-law jokes, right? Here's a great example of daughter-in-law and mother-in-law with great affection and love and kindness. 
It's only the narrator or other people in the story who use the phrase in-law. Isn't that interesting? Naomi repeatedly refers to the daughters as my daughters. Verse 11, verse 13. Both daughters seem to be loved and loving. They both weep. They both kiss Naomi. But you see in verse 14, perhaps there's a slight hint of Ruth's unusual care and love for Naomi. It says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. And to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. So at the fork in the road, stop there, at the fork in the road, one goes one way and another daughter-in-law is intent on going the other. Orpah has gone back to her people, and that's understandable. Gone back to mom and dad, gone back to home, gone back to what's familiar, gone back to everything you know. But it's not just sheer practicality, is it? And to her gods, it says. Verse 15. She had gone back to her people and to her gods. She refused to give up her idols. She had been around this, this teaching about one true God named Yahweh. Apparently, she didn't drink the Kool-Aid. Ruth, on the other hand, refused to part from Naomi Verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, but that's not just affection. That's not just commitment. That's not just a familial comment. So now we come to the third thing to talk about. In the midst of this fork in the road, we see not just allegiance, but conversion. Conversion, that's what's happening here. Ruth's commitment to Naomi is not just relational or familial, it's spiritual. Conversion has taken place. Notice the four in the middle of verse 16. Don't urge me to leave. Four, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. How beautiful is this? It's a conversion. It's probably already taken place, but here's proof. Conversion means turn. In the New Testament, conversion is describing that thing of turning from self and from sin, from Satan, and turning to the living God through Jesus Christ on account of his work upon the cross where he died in the place of sinners to remove guilt and offer righteousness. Conversion means to repent and believe in New Testament terms. And when we do that, that's conversion. When we do that, we're, we're becoming a Christian. You become a Christian by believing, by giving up on self and sin and Satan and turning to the Savior. This is what Ruth did in an Old Testament way. She came to believe that Yahweh was the only true God, and it has massive implications. She's leaving behind family now, leaving behind home, leaving behind her gods. And she's identifying with God's people, not just with God. She identifies with God's people. She only knows one of God's people, Naomi. So they're stuck together, right? She's on her like glue because she only knows of one. By the way, think of the New Testament implications for this phrase here. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Think of the churchly implications of that. God saves us, not just to be individual Christians and to have God as our God, gloriously spectacular as that is, but he also puts us together as his people. We are a people for his own possession, we're told in 1 Peter 2. 
And we're supposed to go together. We're supposed to meet up like we are this morning. Now back to Ruth here. Remember she was a Moabite. She was a Moabite. The the Old Testament allowed for Gentile conversion. You see hints of it in the Old Testament. You see Ruth becoming a God follower. You see Rahab doing the same. The Ninevites in Jonah's time, they came to believe in Yahweh, the true God. You also see in the Old Testament, though, promises of God's salvation and worship one day going global. You see in the promises to Abraham that one day he'll be the father of many nations and through him all the nations will be blessed. All the nations be blessed in Abraham. The New Testament tells us that's a salvation sort of way. It's not just a Abraham and his country that God one day will bring will be a good thing in the world, not a bad thing in the world. No, it's salvation and praise. Like Psalm 67 which prays, may your name be known in all the earth and let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples, the nations, the cultures, the languages, the tongues, let them praise you. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this came to a head when Jesus came to this earth as a man and taught. He began to say things like in John 12, If I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. All kinds of men. Not just Jews, but Jew and Gentile and anything in between. Jesus said he would leave the 99 so-called righteous religious leaders in order to go after the one wayward sheep that knows it's wayward. He didn't come for those who don't need a physician. He comes for the sick. And the sick so often are those, spiritually speaking, those who know themselves to be sick because they're very familiar with sin. They're not close to God. That's us. And yet these promises of a global salvation and glory, yes, came to a head when Jesus came to this world, but they've not come to their fullest reality even still 2,000 years later. That's why we tell our friends about Jesus. That's why we preach the gospel even if they don't like us. That's why we sacrifice to send some of our best friends to North Africa because it's a land where there is very little knowledge about the Lord and his glory and the salvation that comes through Jesus. Hear back home. Hear this. Hear it from Ruth. The door has been wide open. When Jesus came, it was made wide open, more so than even in Ruth's day. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and Jesus will give you rest. Come regardless of your heritage. Come regardless of your past. Come regardless of what you used to believe. Leave your gods and your family's belief and heritage, if necessary, and line yourself with the true and living God like Ruth did. The door is wide open, so come, but come like Ruth. Come boldly and courageously and throwing all things off. For Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If Ruth had heard Jesus say those words, she would say, I come, I come, and may death overtake me if I do not follow and cling for all of life. Jesus' call in Matthew 10 sounds radical to us. And really all it is is the first of the Ten Commandments. You'll have no other gods besides me, not fathers, not daughters, not sons, not mothers. You'll have no other gods 
besides me and before me. Come, the door is wide open, and come, all of you. As we used to sing when I was a kid at youth camp, though though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Okay, back to Ruth. Fourth, we see this theme, interpreting providence. Interpreting providence. As the story moves along, we're told in verse 19 that they came back to Bethlehem together, Naomi and Ruth. And we're told that the town was alarmed. It says stirred in verse 19. Naomi was for some reason barely recognizable to the townsmen. It had only been 10 years since they'd left, but perhaps her face had aged much more than that. Perhaps the townsmen are just startled to see Naomi without her husband, without her two sons. They just see two widows, and one of them's a Moabite. They're startled, they're alarmed, they're stirred. But it's Naomi's response to the townspeople's shock that deserves our attention. It's an interpretation of God's providence. By providence, I mean his plan. I mean her circumstances. The ups and the downs, the good and the bad. What does she say in verse 20? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant in Hebrew. Call me Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She said something similar to the daughters back in verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So how should we interpret Naomi's interpretation of the circumstances? Well, there are some things that are quite admirable about what she says in both of those sections. She rightly attributes the hard circumstances to the Lord. He is in control. The answer is not saying to Naomi, it wasn't the Lord, it was just dumb bad luck. No, no, no. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job won. Job said after he lost his his sons and daughters and, and all his wealth and his houses, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And the next verse says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God falsely. He was right to say the Lord gave and took away. And and Naomi's right to say the Lord has has done this. The Lord has brought this upon me. And the circumstances were undeniably bitter. Who can doubt that? Which of us would say "I, I could do better under those circumstances? She was honest here. That's a good thing. There's no point in hiding our laments from the Lord like he doesn't know our thoughts. The Psalms also show us time and time again what godly lament is and what it does and and it's not shy it's it's not cute it's messy and and slobbery and tear-filled but this is probably not one of those godly models of lament like we find in the psalms Naomi doesn't appear to be wrestling with her doubts but just totally engaging them she doesn't seem to be doing anything doing anything more than complaining here unlike those psalms which mingle praise for God in the midst of lament and rehearsing promises of God in the midst of lament there's a bitter tone to her description of these bitter circumstances she says this has been exceedingly bitter She calls it calamity. Some scholars have even suggested an unusual emphasis on me in these verses. Verse 20, she she says, he has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full, but 
And the Lord testified against me and brought calamity on me. Perhaps there is an unhealthy self-focus going on here. Regardless, she's certainly not being objective here, is she? She says she's returned empty. No, she hasn't. She's got the godliest, sweetest daughter-in-law who's ever lived, except for my wife, of course. <laughs> yeah, he, she's not being objective here at all, is she? No. She's back home. That's a good thing. Remember back in verse 6, it said that the Lord had visited his people now and given them food. They went away because there was a famine, but, but she's back home in a land where there's no famine but food, and it's home. And she's with her daughter-in-law. She's not empty. God is certainly Lord over all the heart-wrenching circumstances in this woman's life, but he had purposes in his infinite wisdom. Some of those known purposes and many of them unknown purposes, we don't know. We don't know. But his judgment with the famine wasn't unique to Naomi. It was a corporate judgment. It was a restorative judgment. And he's proving his faithfulness again and again and again. Both the return of food and the godly resolve of Ruth are indications of God's faithfulness through it all. But here's another approach to God's providence in chapter 2, Naomi's was one. Now we see through Ruth's example and the narrator's commentary another approach to interpreting providence. Look at verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young, men, who was, uh, young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now you have to understand first something about this gleaning thing. What is that? The Old Testament law commanded landowners not to be too meticulous when reaping their crops so that travelers and the impoverished could go pick up the leftovers, okay? And that's what Ruth is doing. She's not stealing. Uh, she's, she's simply taking advantage of Old Testament food stamps. Put it that way. But notice her approach to these bitter circumstances She's proactive. She's caring for her elderly mother-in-law. She's not at home sulking. She's humble. I mean, she's basically using food stamps, and that can be humbling to a family that, that has to do that and who isn't used to that. This is that kind of thing. It has that sort of stigma to it as well. But she's bold in her humility too. Even more important, though, to interpreting God's providence here in this part of the story is the way the narrator unfolds it for us. In verse 1, he introduced us to Boaz before Boaz actually enters the story. It's sort of like a, tuck this away, watch this. Watch this guy, Boaz. This is going to get interesting. And then with a wink and a grin, in verse 3, he writes that Ruth happened to come to Boaz's field happened to come like it was happenstance oh he doesn't believe in happenstance or luck again it's with a wink and a grin and then in verse 4 at least the ESV reads and behold Boaz came but it could read just then Boaz came as luck would have it Boaz showed up at the same time 
Now, Boaz is the real game changer in this story, humanly speaking. We'll see, Boaz will be a redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. But Ruth didn't know that when she picked that guy's field. She didn't know what field was his or or who he was or anything like that. Naomi didn't direct Ruth to Boaz's field, you know, hoping to orchestrate a potential marriage someday. It just happened. But God was behind it. God was orchestrating it. It didn't just happen. Nothing just happens. A man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. We often say, who'd have thunk? We staff guys often talk about, if you didn't know that guy, and if we didn't meet him, and if we weren't at that conference, I never would have gotten your resume, and you'd still be someplace else, and it might be better, it might be worse, I don't know. But isn't it interesting, right? The who'd have thunk it game. The what if that didn't happen game. It's so interesting. It's easy to see when it goes well. It's fun to retrace the steps when it goes well. And here it's gone well for Ruth so far, right? But we need to trace God's hand in faithfulness through thick and thin, to the ups and downs, to the easy and hard. We need to realize that nothing just happened. He's good and he's faithful and he's orchestrating things behind it for our good and for his glory, mysterious as that is. Fifth, as the chapter unfolds here, we see undeserved kindness. Not just kindness, but undeserved kindness. Boaz's provision in the verses we already read turns to protection in verse 8. With this gleaning thing, it would have been expected that Ruth would would have moved on to another field tomorrow. Maybe you pick one guy's field one day, and next time you're hungry, you pick another guy's field. You, you You don't clean a guy out, right? But Boaz goes beyond what's expected of him in caring for Ruth, And he insists that Ruth stay in his field. In fact, he says, stick close to my lady workers as they're working in the field, all right? You're not just an outsider, but but go with them. Do what they're doing. He he says, I'll I'll tell my men. There's no cat calling, okay? He says, I'll tell my men to be nice to you, to be gentlemanly around you. You'll be safe. Even more gracious, verse 9, he says, when you're thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink. How does Ruth respond to all this? Look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face before Boaz, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law Since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me. And spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. As the story proceeds, Boaz's kindness proceeds as well. In verse 14, he invites Ruth to eat with him and his people. Not just pick out there in the field, but when lunchtime comes, sit down with us at the table and eat like we eat. She has wine and roasted grain. And verse 14 says she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. Boaz also instructed his workers to let her pick from the crops. Like that is the, the, the cream of the crops, right? Not just the leftovers, not just what fell to the ground, not just what was on the outside of the farm, you could say. But, but pick just like anyone else picked there. He also says to the servants, leave out some big bundles for her. Make it easy for her. 
She picked crops all day, verse 17, until evening, it says. And what did she have at the end? An ephah of barley. I know everyone in here knows what an ephah is, so I don't need to explain it, right? I'll just go ahead and explain it anyway, in case you don't. An ephah of barley is five gallons, 30 pounds, and about a half month's wages. What are you making a month? Cut it in half. That's what she's been given here. That's what she takes home. What a day this has been. Did you notice? This is all the same day. This is all one glorious day for her. What a change of circumstances. From famine to feasting. From vagabond to the lunch table. From scraps to stockpiling. Our God seems to love to act big when things look the weakest and bleakest. And what kindness from Boaz. What a model of caring for the needy. In some ways, he's the good Samaritan of the Old Testament. And yet, don't forget that unseen character who's really the star of the show in the book of Ruth. It's not Boaz, but God. It is God who has provided for Naomi and Ruth. He's done it through the kindness of Boaz, but God has done it. What do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, then where is boasting as if you did not receive it? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor changing. The Lord has done it. And who's the first to recognize that God has worked through the kindness of Boaz? It's Naomi. Naomi in verse 20. Ruth is now returned home with this giant stash of barley. In verse 20, Ruth says, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Whose kindness refers to the Lord, not to Boaz. Blessed be Boaz by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Remember her bitter words back in the last chapter? Bitter words about the Lord and the calamity he brought into her life. It was exceedingly bitter, she said. But here... She confesses the Lord has been kind and has not forsaken them. In fact, he, he's not just been kind. In our English, that, that's far too weak of a word. This is the famous Hebrew word, chesed, covenant love, loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness, his covenant kindness. He has revived his actions in his covenant care shown to Ruth and to Naomi. He has not forsaken the covenant. It is the Lord who gives undeserved kindness. And we get to imitate that like Boaz. We get to imitate that. How amazing is that? We get to, we get to pile on love and care and sacrifice for others. Yes, it's commanded as well, but, but we get to. We get to be God-like. We get to play God in this really good way. To be practicing chesed, faithfulness and kindness and love to others. Now, lastly, we can say the best is still to come. The best is still to come. Look at the second half of verse 20. Naomi, Naomi also said to Ruth, the man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. A relative? Oh, we know what that is. That's nice. That's good. One of our redeemers? What does that mean? We'll come back next week. I'll, I'll spoil it for you in just a minute here, but, but uh, you'll have to come back next week to really get and grasp what, what this is talking about here with this redeemer, Boaz as a redeemer, unless, of course, you're familiar with the story already, but, but we need to hear God's word preached again and again and again, and so none of us can say, ah, I heard that before. But the point is this, 
the best is still to come in the story of Ruth regarding this Redeemer. And the best is still to come in what comes after Ruth because this isn't the last book of the Bible. This isn't the only book of the Bible. It's one right smack dab in the middle and there's a whole lot more that comes after this. So let me try to explain that a little bit more by suggesting different lenses through which we can look at the story of Ruth. I know very little about photography, but I have seen enough of photography to know that there are different lenses that can be applied to cameras in different ways to take different kinds of pictures. Did I thrill you with my expertise of the photography world? I mean, I've seen cameras on top of microscopes, and, and they can get, you know, incredibly small detail out of what they're taking a picture of. And then there's, there are, you know, lenses that, that capture a, a landscape, right? They're panoramic. So here are different lenses that we could put to the story of Ruth. Microscopically, you can see bitter circumstances in that alone. You can look in that microscope and see nothing more. You can read verses 1 through 5, and you can read Naomi's laments in those later verses, and you can just stop there and say, this is horrible, this stinks. You can, you can join her in her complaint. Bitter circumstances is one lens through which we see the story of Ruth, but it is. It's a microscopic one, isn't it? Which means your circumstances, your hardships, your worries, your doubts, your struggles, they are, in the grand scheme of things, microscopic. Oh, I know that's hard to hear because it doesn't feel like it when you're in the middle of it. But, but it's true, right? We know. Hey, if you only looked at verses 1 through 5, you'd say, this is horrible, this is horrible, this is horrible. What hope is there? But you know that story goes on. And when you're thinking your best, you know your story goes on, don't you? Secondly, there's another lens. We could think of providence and, and provision and protection that, that God is orchestrating a turn of events and he's proving his covenant faithfulness. And he lets it get bad before he brings in the good and he often works that way. That's a lens we have to put over the book of Ruth or, or, or we'll totally miss the, the most important person of the story, God himself. Another lens we could put over the book of Ruth is one we could call conversion or salvation or inclusion. That here this Moabite, this Gentile, has accidental missionaries move to her land, marry her in sin, then die. And then a mother-in-law who's like an anti-evangelist. No, 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 you go, you go, you go. When she should have been saying, yeah, come on, come on, come on. And through it all, I want your people to be my people. I want your God to be my God. And so it was. How beautiful. Another lens we could put over the book of Ruth is that the Redeemer, Boaz, here's the spoiler alert. He becomes the husband and he bears Ruth a son. Now turn to the end of the book. Here's the real spoiler, chapter 4. This son will have an important grandson. Verse 17 the people say, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The book of Judges ended by talking about how there's no king in Israel, and hence it's chaotic. Ruth begins the story of the coming king. Ruth begins to tell us about the coming of the king. And we've been learning about that in the book of 1 Samuel, haven't we? So Ruth isn't just about a widow who gets a good husband. So bank on that. Read Ruth more and maybe it'll happen. It might. Ruth is not just a story about a childless woman who gets a son in the end. So read Ruth more and maybe it'll come. It, it might, if the Lord wills. But, but the book of Ruth is about lineage. It's solving even a bigger problem than one family. It's about God providing a king, about God setting things aright. It's about God fulfilling his covenant faithfulness. 
It's massive. And then zoom out 1,000 years. Put this giant panoramic lens on the camera and remember another genealogy. In Matthew 1, we get the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who's the son of Abraham, the son of, do you know? David. Jesus is the son of David. In fact, Matthew 1, verses 3 through 6, actually quote the genealogy that you find at the end of Ruth. Again, we'll hear more about that next week. But know this. God, in his covenant faithfulness and love and kindness, has provided a king, a redeemer. And it's not Boaz. And it's not Boaz's son. And it's not even Boaz's grandson, David. It is God himself. It is the God-man, Jesus. He is the one who came and lived righteously, died sacrificially, and rose victoriously, and now reigns forevermore. Another lens we can say, if we believe that Jesus is our sacrifice and king, is that the best is still to come for us. The best is still to come, isn't it, Christian? The best is still to come. Daily, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we also need to know that here we, we're in a pilgrimage, we're sojourning, and we're not home yet. And one day we will be home, not to a land flowing with milk and honey, but a land that, well, a whole new world, where God's glory is the sun and he will reign with us forever and ever. With what lenses are you viewing your life? It's easy to live through that first lens, isn't it? Just worry, just struggle, just doubt, just despair. You're still using that first lens? Well, Ruth encourages us to think bigger. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Oh, Father, we thank you for such great, glorious gospel-giving hope. We thank you, Lord, that your word is not trite in, in merely offering us a, a different outlook on, on suffering, just telling us to pretend that it isn't there, giving us the hope of a, another life in re, reincarnation where we'll get another chance to do it better. Father, we thank you for your grand plan, for your great salvation. We thank you for your sovereignty over our, our lives. We thank you for your goodness shown to us in a billion ways, the majority of which we're unaware of, the majority of which we don't thank you enough for. Moms are certainly one of those. Each of us in this room has had one. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us your sovereign goodness. May you be praised. Amen.